This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not contain or replace any legal advice. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Watchdog. Uh, the Maddox podcast will be discussing the ACCC's leading cases in 2020 and how well they performed against their 2020 priorities in this podcast and a, a number of other podcasts as well. My name is Sean Temby. I'm a partner in the dispute resolution and litigation team at Maddox, and I'm also the editor of our annual publication, the ACCC Year in Review. Joining me today is Aaron Klosko and Robert Gregory. Aaron works for clients across healthcare, aged care, and medical technology sectors, and specialises in complex transactions for buyers, sellers, and developers of healthcare assets. Rob specialises in advising regulators and regulated entities in relation to technology, media and telecommunications, advertising, brands and marketing, competition and consumer law. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show, Sean. Let's get started. Aaron, uh, we're talking about the healthcare sector uh, and the intersection with the ACCC's enforcement priorities. Um, obviously, the healthcare sector has been very much in the spotlight over the past year with the sector's role in helping uh, Australians deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and, of course, the continuing Royal Commission into Aged Care. How did these issues impact how the ACCC oversaw the healthcare sector in 2020? Look, I think that's spot on. There's nothing quite like a global pandemic to put healthcare front and centre. And the pandemic really dominated 2020. And it was unsurprising that that was the dominant theme for the ACCC's work in healthcare during the last year. I think one thing that's really important to talk about is that the healthcare sector is very broad. It it comprises nearly 10% of the economy. So sure, there were parts of the sector that were really in the front line to the response to COVID, particularly in the early days. And the aged care sector was one that is a really key part of that response and the one that really bore the brunt of a lot of the human tragedy of the response to COVID. But there are other parts of the sector which face trading conditions which are as bad or worse than other sectors that are more well known to have been hit by COVID, like retail and and hospitality. So particularly at the consumer end of um, healthcare, some of the issues we saw were, were in fact depressingly predictable. The ACCC's figures reported, for example, an 86 rise in complaints about the pharmaceutical and cosmetics industry last year. And I would expect that a significant proportion of those complaints related to marketing of products claiming to prevent or cure COVID. And it was really interesting to see in that space that the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, which has a concurrent regulatory jurisdiction here, particularly around advertising, has itself been really busy with several businesses fined for unlawful advertisements and claims about COVID-19. A couple of the most high-profile examples of that were fines being levied against Lorna Jane for their antiviral active wear, and the forever-in-the-press celebrity chef Pete Evans also was fined for his 
his biocharger device that also had some some claims about attempting to prevent or cure COVID. I mean, the ACCC really jumped on those sorts of claims and that sort of conduct really quickly. But I think, you know, the speed with which the ACCC pivoted to address the challenges posed by COVID was, was remarkable, wasn't it? Absolutely. And from my perspective, I think it's easy to understand why that would be. Focusing on this, particularly from the consumer law perspective, the risk of consumer harm from dodgy COVID-19 claims is exactly the kind of thing which is almost guaranteed to get the ACCC interested and, and acting. Of course, here, consumers risk not only throwing away good money, but they also risk harm. They risk reducing their vigilance in taking proper infection control procedures, becoming careless and complacent, and that has an effect as well. So leaving aside the consumer law space for a moment, Rob, we saw the ACCC give some very broad leeway for competitors in various industries to coordinate in dealing with the pandemic and their response. What were your thoughts on the ACCC's approach to authorisation of you know, that type of coordinated conduct? So in its more adjudicative and less enforcement functions, the ACCC uh, in many areas applies a public benefit test where any um, countervailing public benefit of otherwise anti-competitive conduct can be authorised by the ACCC. This is the first time they've taken into account sort of the effects of a pandemic in assessing public benefit, but there's at least three good examples, we think, where that was done. So, for example, authorising private health insurers to cooperate in relation to their responses to COVID-19, so including extending cover to COVID-19 admissions, telehealth consultations, uh, and also financial relief to policyholders who um, perhaps had lost income or jobs due to the pandemic. They also um, authorised public and private hospitals in each state and territory to negotiate and enter into and give effect to partnership agreements, basically to ensure that there's viability of private hospital sector when elective surgery was completely suspended from March 2020, and also to allow some capacity allocation between the private and public sectors. Then they also, quite importantly, I think, authorised medical technology suppliers to coordinate procurement and supply of key medical supplies, including ventilators, COVID-19 test kits, personal protective equipment, all things that in ordinary circumstances would be very difficult to justify under normal competition law. But in this case, the public benefit clearly favoured the ACCC giving those authorisations. I think it's a good example of how flexible both the law can be, but also the way the ACCC has been administering it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, the Commission was prepared to allow that sort of coordination between competitors. I mean, I can understand the circumstances, but it it does lead, you know, to the next point of inquiry, which is, is there an ongoing risk that that coordination will continue in these markets in particular when the COVID protective mechanisms or measures are removed? Now, Rod Sims was asked about that recently at a a CEDAR event, uh, and he denied that that was a risk, but do you agree with that? Look, I think for those that are very specific things, yes, because they're all fairly well governed and, and regulated businesses and they have a high degree of awareness of the exceptionalism of those circumstances and what the ACCC did in those cases. So in those sort of temporary and emergency authorizations, that's right. But coordination in healthcare is seen by the ACCC uh, and me as well for what it's worth as, as very much an ongoing risk. Healthcare has always been a sector in where industry participants get together at conferences and, and other events and talk with each other. And sometimes that talk can 
can stray from appropriate um, clinical or, or administrative discussions into into areas that probably uh, risk being perceived to be acting in concert with one another. You know, and, and it's always important, I think, for industry participants, particularly at industry events, to, to think about what a naturally and professionally suspicious person might think if they were um, reading a transcript of what you were saying. The important thing to remember, though, if there's always a genuine and demonstrable public benefit for some kind of industry initiative um, involving a degree of coordination, the ACCC um, has a good record of authorising that both within the healthcare space but also in other sectors as well. Now, I'll throw this open to either of you. Is there anything in the way that the ACCC has approached the healthcare sector last year that, that you think will continue beyond the pandemic and into 2021? For me, the resolution of the health engine proceedings is a pretty interesting development. Health engine is an online booking platform that allows consumers to leave review and ratings of healthcare providers, so like TripAdvisor. And there are two aspects of the case. The first involved publishing reviews that had been heavily, heavily edited to remove negative comments or to embellish otherwise positive comments, conduct which was pretty obviously misleading. But the second aspect that I think is interesting from the ACCC's perspective is that Health Engine was also providing personal information from patients to health insurance brokers without adequately disclosing that they were doing so. Now, that's a really interesting development in that that is conduct which would typically fall within the regulatory remit of the Privacy Commissioner. That's essentially a breach of privacy. But it's interesting to see the ACCC approaching that kind of issue as a consumer law issue. And I don't think that's the last we'll see of the ACCC looking at misleading conduct involving personal information, whether in the healthcare sector specifically or in other sectors. And Rob, did you have a, a comment about some of the trends we might see continuing, maybe even in this consumer data space? Well, well I think that's right. Picking up on what Aaron was saying, in, in other, um, say, for example, merger clearance transactions, the ACCC has become very conscious of the value of data about individuals, often called personal information. Generally, that's a, a different regulator's space in Australia, but we We've seen APRA in the financial services space and increasingly ACCC in the consumer space stepping in and, and you're seeing privacy as a key part of its regulatory toolkit. So a good example was perhaps when uh, globally Google was acquiring Fitbit, who obviously generate and store a, a large amount of perhaps fitness rather than healthcare, but specifically data, but certainly data about people and, and their, their fitness activities. The ACCC had a number of concerns about that and in fact even rejected a uh, proposal undertaking offered by Google to resolve those concerns. Um, and then unusually, Google proceeded to complete the transaction despite it not being cleared by the ACCC. So at this point, we're waiting to see what the ACCC does next about that. But there's always a risk that it might form the view that the acquisition has contravened Section 50 and it might seek orders, including for divestment. So they're, they're the sort of things you can start to see in this sort of privacy space overlapping into competition law, but also um, uh, sort of technology generally. Well, personally, Personal information increasingly being attributed with economic value by the ACCC, that's going to be one of the topics in one of our other watchdog 
podcast dealing with digital tech and data. Being a dispute lawyer, I'm interested in talking a little bit about some of the key cases that the ACCC brought in this space last year. Any that jumped out uh, for you, Aaron? One that jumps to top of mind is the ACCC brought to resolution the proceedings involving Bupa. Now, that case had been running for a couple of years, but essentially the facts of that case involved a scenario where Bupa had identified that they were charging what are called extra services fees to their residents, which are fees usually charged for providing a bit bit higher quality accommodation and services to residents of aged care facilities. Bupa self-reported that conduct and entered into a pretty extensive remediation program, totaling almost $18 million in remediation. And these proceedings were brought to resolution with a, a fine of $6 million payable by Bupa. It's one that was looked at by many participants in the sector as in some ways being quite a difficult outcome in that it was acknowledged in the judgment that there was essentially inadvertence here, insufficient compliance rather than, you know, deliberate intent to mislead or deceive. But the case is a really good illustration that, you know, the absence of a deliberate intent to mislead certainly doesn't preclude conduct being otherwise misleading or deceptive. I know this case did get a lot of interest in the sector while it was before the court. And I think there was some surprise around the way that the the court approached penalty, particularly given that Bupa had self-reported. And I wonder, is self-reporting a sensible approach given the outcome in this decision? This is a question we get asked quite a lot. Outside of some very specific areas in perhaps medical professions and finance, there's generally no obligation to self-report breaches to a regulator. The reason why many organisations choose to do it is to hope to mitigate and reduce the penalties that they would otherwise be liable for. It's always a difficult decision when there's no legal obligation to self-report as to whether it's the right course of action, but I think it's fair to say, anecdotally, we're seeing more businesses choose to do it. So apart from Bupa, Aaron, any other cases that that, that caught your eye? We briefly mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the proceedings brought against Lorna Jane for the claims about antiviral active wear and those advertisements explicitly, at least the earlier iteration of those advertisements explicitly referred to protection against COVID-19. These are the kinds of cases which it's pretty easy to see why the ACCC is is stepping in to take enforcement action in these scenarios because if these allegations are proven, this is quite concerning conduct because it does in fact take advantage of, you know, a global pandemic pandemic and the vulnerability that we all feel in yeah. those those environments. I found this case bizarre. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people did. Was this um, sort of conduct of any surprise to you? To be honest, Sean, uh, I'm disappointed to say not not really at all. You'll probably remember that it was basically about a year ago to the day that most of us got notice and were sent home from, from our place of work to be working at home for months. I can certainly remember paying $35 for a bottle of hand sanitizer and standing in a queue to pay you know, $2 for the scarce roll of, of toilet paper that was left at 
at the grocery store. It was a tense time. It was scary. And when people are, are scared, you'll have a small minority of traders who will want to take advantage of that. That's not what I'm saying necessarily happened in the, the Lorna Jane case, but we'll see in due course on, on what side of right and wrong the Lorna Jane case sits on as it progresses through the courts. Yes, you were lucky if you could find a, a $2 roll of toilet paper, Aaron. So uh, next time we have a global pandemic, let me know what supermarket you're shopping at. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so we've talked about Lorna Jane. Any other cases that, uh, that you think are worthy of mention in this podcast? Yeah, and look, I'll briefly touch on the proceedings brought by the ACCC against Ramsey Healthcare. This was a really complex case which involved ultimately unproven allegations of misuse of market power and exclusive dealing. The facts of the case are very complex, but boiling them down, essentially the ACCC were making allegations that certain executives at Ramsey had threatened to withdraw what are called the operating privileges of a group of surgeons in in Coffs Harbour if they went ahead with a proposal to open in a competing facility. A complex set of facts occurring many years before the case was actually heard before the court. But the problem forensically in the proceedings for the ACCC was that a recording taken covertly on a mobile phone emerged during the hearing and basically torpedoed the ACCC's case that, in a nutshell, that recording did not support the allegations that the ACCC had pleaded, meaning that on a factual basis, the court had preferred the view of the Ramsey executives in that hearing. So what does this case say about the way that the ACCC approaches uh, regulation in the healthcare sector? Do, do you think this is a case that should ever have been brought? Yeah, and leaving aside the, the really fascinating forensic aspects of the case, what it really does illustrate for me is how complex the markets are in, in healthcare and that means, for example, when a court is required to do the detailed work of assessing whether claims like the of the ACCC levied against the ACCC were actually substantiated and doing the really detailed work of counterfactual analysis, the nature of the different markets makes it fiendishly difficult to do that kind of analysis because you're not just looking at the markets for supply of hospital services to patients, you're also looking at the market for supply of operating theatre services to doctors. I understand the ACCC's theory of the case here, but that's not the same thing as, as saying that they should have brought the case. It was a really difficult case. I can understand why the ACCC has wanted to test propositions around misuse of market power, which has always been an area where they have had difficulty bringing bringing and establishing misuse of market power cases. This one is not a case that is particularly illuminating, particularly given the changes in November 2017 to the misuse of market power provisions. Well, I know the medical sector is one that the ACCC does keep a close eye on, given some of those uh, market forces that you were describing. Do we think we're going to see more of that in 2021? What do you think the ACCC will be focusing on? My money 
in 2021 will probably be on the aged care and disability sectors. Both sectors are undergoing significant structural change, transitioning from legacy models of care to consumer-centred models of care. The combination of really complex funding challenges, the inherent vulnerability of the consumers in that space, persistent concerns about inadequate governance, really for me make those sectors ones to watch from from an ACCC perspective. It will have escaped no one's attention that the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety handed down eight volumes of report this week. The Royal Commission in the disability sector is ongoing in 2021. For me, those are the sectors to watch. But the ACCC always has an interest in healthcare, and I don't think we will have certainly seen the last of them looking at other parts of the healthcare sector from a competition perspective. That perfect combination of a vulnerable consumer, a disparity in access to information that is uh, frequently going to attract the attention of the ACCC. Rob, a question for you. Are we expecting that the ACCC is going to be worried about that sort of vulnerable consumer and that lack of access to information, particularly given what's happening with the rollout of the vaccine and you know potentially the vaccine-related scam? Look, I think that's right. I think, A, that the those um, scams are really likely to emerge over the course of the year. And I, I do expect the ACCC to be very vigilant and vigorous in the way it approaches them. So one of the other features in relation to the way Australia is doing its vaccine rollout with a single, effectively no, no choice between vaccines, is that I wouldn't be surprised at all to see scams emerge where people purport to offer choices of different vaccines to consumers for a, a supermarket price. Those are the sorts of scams that I think the ACCC will be very vigilant for and, and will take very strong action against. And it's a sort of thing that informed consumers should also be on their, their lookout for as well. I'm hoping we're not going to see widespread disinformation or misinformation campaigns as well, whether or not those comments are made in trade and commerce and therefore fall within the jurisdiction of the ACCC or not. I think there's a real potential problem that's going to come up over the course of the I year. I think that's right. I think the sort of more traditional anti-vaccine comments, if it's not coupled with a, a product or an alternative therapy or something that someone's trying to sell, probably don't fall within the ACCC's remit. But where they're clearly doing it yes. with a, a commercial purpose then I, I would expect the ACCC to be um, right onto it. And returning right to a theme from the big beginning of the show, Sean and Rob, this is an area in which we won't have seen the last of the TGA as well. So the TGA certainly has a concurrent regulatory jurisdiction here, and it won't be lost on many of our listeners that we are in a country where advertising of prescription drugs is not allowed at all. Vaccines are prescription drugs they are no different and so and i imagine we won't have seen the last of the tga also casting its eye over the availability of vaccines and the way that is being communicated to consumers particularly approaching it from the tga's perspective the way they regulate this space you know that's a perfect observation Aaron, and and people do sometimes complain that we live in a nanny state and that we're overregulated but it's at times like this that you really do appreciate having strong and effective national regulators that can you know really jump on this sort of conduct so quickly 
Anyway, thank you very much, gentlemen. I think that's all we've got time for. Uh, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Watchdog. If you've got any questions, please head over to the Maddox website where you can get in touch with either myself, Aaron, or Rob. Thank you very much for listening, and please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe whenever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.